Hey, folks, I know there are lots of business owners who listen to this show. Maybe some of you never planned on running a business, but now here you are. One thing you've always got to keep in mind is how much you're spending on your operating costs. That's one of the first things we had to keep in mind with WTF. And with things costing more today than they did when we started, you want to keep your expenses down. To reduce costs and headaches, be smart and use NetSuite by Oracle, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, and HR into one platform and one source of truth. Reduce IT costs, cut the costs of maintaining multiple systems, improve efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. By popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash WTF for more. That's netsuite, N-E-T-S-U-I-T-E dot com slash WTF. Lock the gate! All right, let's do this. How are you? What the fuckers? What the fuck buddies? What the fuck Adelics? What the fuck Nicks? What the fuck Tuplets? How is everyone? Everybody okay? Is everybody locked in? Joseph Gordon-Levitt is on the show today, and we had a very nice chat. I like his new show. I enjoy the new show, the uh, Mr. Corman show. I've been watching a lot of stuff for homework, but uh, sometimes it's like, oh, good. Thank God. It's, it's, thank God it's good. But, uh, but I've been pushing it with the stand up and I can feel an edge to it. You know, there is a point where my excitement, it's not that my excitement diminishes. It's that I get, I come up against the wall of like, all right, this, a lot of this stuff is working. A lot of it is, you, you know, is riding an edge. A lot of it makes people uncomfortable. Uh, some of it. And am, am I doing that on purpose? Can I relieve that tension? Like there's been a couple of incidents on stage lately where I feel the tension I've created, and in my heart, I don't exactly know why I'm creating it, and I almost have to laugh cry uh, in, in order to move forward. I mean, the other night I went on stage, just stripped down, and it was funny because I was talking, and some woman stage right was sitting with her husband or boyfriend, a man, uh, said something. It didn't seem like a heckle, but I like, what was that? Did you say something? And her, the man she's with goes, she said she feels sad for you. And I'm like, oh, no, no. I'm like, I'm, it's oozing. It's seeping. The cracks, the cracks. And then I, I thought back to that night when I was a doorman in the main room in the 80s and Rodney Dangerfield had come into the main room and he never went to that club. He never went to the comedy store, really. But he was just running a few minutes for his Oscar set. I've told this story before. And he, he, he pops off a couple of bits and some guy in the in the room just goes, hey, Rodney, what? Why are you so sad? What, is, what, is, what does that mean? What, you, what kind of room is this? Oh, uh, like, he just kind of, it kind of shook him up. Like, he didn't know, like, it's an honest question. It's a weird question. Yeah, the answer is difficult. But it was that moment of acknowledging that somebody had seen through. That was what caught him off guard. But for me, I was like, no, you're right. You're right. This isn't the I've got to sh stuff it down. I've got to push down that sadness. I mean, what the fuck am I thinking? God damn it. You're right, lady. You're right. Is this a better tone? Are we going to go from here? Let's go from here. This is funnier. So I went all the way out and I pulled it back in and I killed and they were having a great time. 
But it was nice to sort of lay that foundation of honesty at the beginning just to see if I could, you know, run from it, you know, build a funny wall around it, you know, put on the clown's nose. And then the other night, last night, the night before last night, I was in the main room and I just felt the tension I was creating because yeah, the audience was okay. So they weren't great. So I'm trying to meet them halfway. And then I realized like, all right, well, this is going to be how it's going to be. This is the best that's going to happen in here. Every joke was a, you know, it was starting the set over in a way. You had to earn it, every joke. And I would just began to create tension. And at some point, I'm like, what am I doing? I'm like, I started laughing to myself. I put my hands over my, one of my hands over my face. And I'm like, I just, I can feel the tension I'm creating. I don't know why I'm doing it, but it's making me want to cry. And then I said, is this even comedy? Why am I doing this? Why can't I just release this crowd? Why do I, what am I trying to find here? And they were laughing hysterically at my you know, fairly controlled meltdown. But it was, you know, it was, uh, it was cathartic in a way, mildly cathartic. You know, I, you know, it broke me down. I let go. And I realized I got to get back to that place where I can, you know, where I got to let go. I mean, what, you know, what, I get it. Some part of my heart has been broken and it's just the way I'm going to be until it goes away. And uh, what am I expecting audience to do? Why do I need to, you know, is there part of me, which I'm sure there is, that, that wants to drag them into my heartbreak? Is that part of what I do? It, of course it is. Uh, but I, I need to be more conscious of it right now because of the amount of anger and sort of free-floating sadness that, I, that is, you know, kind of uh, moving through me. But in its purest state, not hilarious. My friend Jerry texted me that he was feeling a little down. He asked me how I was doing. I, uh, I said, I said uh, dealing day-to-day, pushing back the sad. Now, is that a good name for a comedy tour? Or, or, or would that not be one that people would buy tickets to? Pushing back the sad. 2021 Mark Marin comedy tour. Huh? No? Yeah? No? Yeah? Oh, I don't know how many of you listened to the Lindsey Buckingham uh, show, but I was talking about my experiences at uh, Brush Ranch Camp and about a particular gal, girl, woman, she, maybe they, who was out in the world still, who I, I kind of like sent a, uh, a signal out to. I wondered what happened out loud. And uh, Karen McKibben is alive and well and has emailed me. I've not emailed her back yet. Nervous. Not nervous. I mean, what what have I got? It's been like a million years. But it's it's interesting about this podcast. It's like, obviously, not everyone listens to this podcast. But there's a real good chance that somebody you know or somebody who you know who knows you know, that you, like, I'm just saying, you're, it, there's only a few degrees away between you and someone who listens to this show. But you're listening to this. Who am I talking to? But you know what I'm saying. You get it? That's You get my point, right? Same with this guy, Luke, from uh, the Matt Damon episode. Someone sent me some info on Luke. Apparently, he's obviously no longer a street musician, and he runs some, uh, he's, he's the head of a, of, a, of a department at some college, like a fan, like Vassar or something. A computer or something. I don't know. And I don't know what Mike is up to, but I've got, I got a, a, an email from somebody from the Tasty who told me that he was one of the Mikes out of the three. But I think the Mike that I was referring to was a guy named Mike Smith. But anyways, but anyways, that's, uh, it's all coming back around, man. People are checking in. I'll reach out. I'll see what happens. I'll see what happens. I left my house the other day without my phone and um, I didn't go back for it. That's right. Hero. That's right, brave. That's right, the unknown, folks. 
to be in that car for what was going to be a probably a, an hour errand, about 20 minutes to, 20 minutes back, 20 in the middle, doing the thing, no phone. And I, I felt a little vulnerable. I felt a little naked. I felt a little disconnected. I felt a little uh, like crazy, like, you know, like, what am I going to do? Where's my friend? Where's my friend? What am I going to do? And that led me to believe that maybe I need to break up with my phone. I don't know. I don't know if that's possible. I don't think it is possible, but it did show me that I could leave it at home more. Like I, and then I, the other night I, I left house, left the house with my phone, but no wallet, a different type of, uh, like feeling like, Oh my, a little untethered, but the wallet fear is really just about like, if I get mangled and my car drives off a cliff or I get into a head on collision and I'm nothing but mush and I don't got my wallet with me, that's gonna, not, not going to be easy to find me. I guess they, well, that's not true. They just find my license plate. Oh, good. I just found a way to comfort myself the next time I in my car and I forget my wallet. Is that like, hey, if they need to ID your remains, they can just pull your info off the plate. Whew. Thank God. I don't need to beat myself up about that next time. I just need to know. I'll be okay when I'm dead if I don't have my wallet. Because just pull it off the plate. Pull that net. Get that info. Yeah, but the, the phone thing was real. And then I, I, did a, I tried an experiment. I took a walk on purpose the other day without my phone. On purpose. Because, dude, the reality is mundane. The reality is slow. You know, what pace is your true reality? How much are you putting in your head that's making you crazy? All this, all these, so 85, 90% of the assumptions we're making are not, they have nothing to do with our life. They have nothing to do with how we are. They have nothing to do with how we treat other people. If your only relationship is with your phone, how often do people factor in? Are you saying thank you? Are you opening the door? Are you asking people how they are? Are you, are you, are you having moments? Do you sit with people? Sit with people. We're all right. Stop the fire. Stop the fire in your brain. Take some time off. Take a little time off from the machine. Okay, so Joseph Gordon-Levitt has been working in show business since he was six years old. Uh, his grandfather was a director. Uh, he was in popular movies as a kid, like Angels in the Outfield and the long-running sitcom Third Rock from the Sun. He was in movies like 500 Days of Summer, The Dark Knight Rises, Inception, Brick, Looper, and a bunch of other movies. But now he's created this amazing show. He's, he's written it, directed it, and stars in this new Apple TV Plus series uh, called Mr. Corman. Um, I watched six episodes. I thought I watched the whole thing, but I hadn't. He sets me straight. And uh, it's just about a guy. It's about a teacher. I think he's a fifth grade teacher, but it's not what he wanted to do. But there's not much. He wanted to be a musician, but there's not much more to the pitch than that. But there's something about the intensity of this guy's way of seeing things and being. It's very familiar. And uh, I, I liked it. He's an intense guy. And it's a very human kind of a show. It's on Apple TV Plus and it uh, premieres Friday. Friday, August 6th. Okay? This is me talking to uh, Joseph Gordon Lev. Sometimes I wish I paid more attention in school, or in some cases, any attention at all. There are probably a lot of things I could have gotten more out of, like literature, and now it's probably not in the cards to go back to school and study the classics. But luckily for us, there's a new podcast called The Foxed Page that dives deep into the best books of all time. This is basically like the best possible college English class, but more relaxed and fun. No pressure of grades or needing 
to prepare something to say in class. It's only the books you want to read and know about presented by best-selling author Kimberly Ford. Everything from Cormac McCarthy to Madame Bovary, from classics like Frankenstein to modern hits like Lessons in Chemistry. I love Ireland, but I missed the boat on James Joyce. The Fox page has a three-part series on Dubliners, and that's a pretty great starting point. Want to get the most out of what you read? The Fox page is for you. Get it now wherever you get your podcasts. Look at that mic. That's a that's a lot. I'm on the Mark Marin podcast. I'm not going to go through some fucking computer speaker uh, microphone. That's very. Know, I appreciate. AirPods. I, I want to sound good. I appreciate the respect. <laughs> and are, are you guys recording video as well, or is this just audio? No, we don't do the video thing. Great. I'm all I'm all for it. Yeah, you don't have to. Well, you know, <laughs> yeah. What you were, what would you what would you have done? Right now, if I would have said, yes, we're doing video. I'll, I'll tell you what I would have done is I would have held the microphone here so you could see my right. mouth instead of holding uh-huh. it here so right. you can't see my mouth. Would you make a hat adjustment? Would there be other things you'd have to... I, I might be more prone to take off my hat knowing uh-huh. that we're not on video because uh, I don't know what my hair is going to look like. And, right, uh, right. I'm just being really honest here. That's why we never do video, and I never wanted to because you know, when you put video... Maybe not now because people have gotten so accustomed to it, but you deal with hair and makeup. It, I, it is one of my favorite things about the medium of the podcast that it is audio only and it puts yeah. the attention on the substance of what you're saying as opposed to the... It's an audio thing. experience. Yeah. yeah. Have you ever read Amusing Ourselves to Death? Yes. Neil Postman. It's one of Whoa, the most important... Oh, hey. I'm, I'm, I'm impressed. You knew what I was talking about. That's great. Yeah. It's, one of, the, it's one of the defining books of my brain. Mine too, to be really honest. Really? My, yeah, mine too. I read it about five years ago or so, and uh, I'm rereading it now. I think about it constantly. Yeah, I, I think I read it when it came out. Oh, wow. So What's there a, you go. Well, I mean, I'm older than you. It's fascinating to read now because for those who haven't read it, it's um, it's analyzing television largely and kind of what the medium of television does to our culture and to public discourse. And what it was becoming. Right. It, and that was before it tipped. Right. So it was it's prophetic, I would imagine. It's incredibly prophetic because when you read what he says about television and but you read it today and you see what new media technology is doing to our culture and to public discourse, it seems like he's talking about Facebook when he's he's talking about television. So it's just been this progression, this march towards the lowest common denominator and the inability of us to have productive conversations. (laughs) Exactly. He was, he was kind of uh, intellectually picturing the nightmare scenario, right? It was like, it was a warning, uh, that book. The opening of it, speaking of a nightmare scenario is so brilliant because he compares these two dystopian sci-fi novels, 1984 and Brave New World. And in 1984, uh, he, you know, it's a, a picture of an authoritarian government that burns books, that prevents everybody from reading, that by force prevents you from doing it. And in Brave New World, uh, he says, you know, the government doesn't have to burn books because nobody's interested There's, in right, reading. People them. are going to be so apathetic by fulfilling their their needs and desires in the empty hole. And now we're sort of we're evolving into some sort of hybrid of both. What? How exciting! We've got. We, very where, active... Where's the hybrid? Like, are, are we any 1984? It seems like we're purely. Are you kidding, Huxley, dude? Like, you know, what are you talking about, man? 
All these Republican state legislatures who are trying to ban critical race theory and and define exactly what education the kids can have and what books and what can be in those books. I mean, you're right about yeah. that. Right yeah, man, that. there's a, a full on fascist thrust going on. But it feels that, like the, uh, the way that they get away with it is because everyone's so distracted and amused by all. The yeah, OK, sure, sure. So so maybe maybe uh, in that model of thinking, the uh, the Huxley version is just the antecedent. Is that the right word? It's 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 what happens before. It's the palate cleanser for a more classical authoritarianism to take. I over. wonder. I, I wonder. I feel like I, I feel like. It's all kind of more sly than what you see in 1984. They couldn't get away with. No, no, that's right. Yeah, because we are Big Brother. They, you know, that in the sense that we've offered ourselves, we've allowed yeah. ourselves to be surveilled. Yeah, we, we signed we've up for it. it. Yeah. Sure. <laughs> so I watched uh, the entire series. Uh, oh, Mr. Gorman? You did? Oh, yes. man. You're, honestly, you're one of the first people I've actually spoken to who's watched the whole thing that, that yeah, wasn't I, involved in making it. Wow, I'm delighted. No, Thank you. Yeah. Sure. Oh yeah, buddy. I uh, and also, I, but before I get into it, I I liked it very much, and I liked it because, like you know, it seems that that intellectually, I I'm with you in terms of how you're seeing what's happening currently, and and just I think life in general. Uh, well, I'm assuming that that means a lot to me. Sure, I, I'm assuming there's a lot of you in that uh, character and in that show. Yeah, that was sort of the the goal from the outset was to make something really personal. I I really love playing characters as an actor that is very different from me. It's one of the things I love about acting, putting myself yeah. in, in someone else's shoes. And the first thing I wrote and directed is called Don John. I, I wanted to play a character that was really different from myself, even though it's not to say he's 100% different. I have overlap with that character, but he was quite different from me. And then with Mr. Corman, I really wanted to try to do something more like myself. But I think in both, when you talk about Don John, I mean... I think that, you know, I don't know, maybe we can talk about how, how we were brought up a little bit, but both of them are, you know, fairly astute uh, cultural criticism and, uh-huh. and, and, and sort of like, it's a little more subtle in Mr. Corman, but I mean, in Don John, I mean, you're talking about the, the sort of, in a comedic way, the, the debilitating reality of, you know, of, of chronic porn consumption, right? Yeah. Uh, which yeah. is, you know, which sort of shifted, I think, uh, a lot more than anybody's willing to admit uh, culturally uh, and and with sexuality and just with, uh, y- you know, uh, causing the isolating power of the of the Internet and technology to really take hold. I agree. I think I think the proliferation of online porn is enormously impactful in ways that we barely talk about. And I think it's actually going to go more and more and more in that direction as the technology gets more sophisticated. And I'm scared yeah. of a generation Back to that's just completely, completely plugged in and blissed out on, on hyper, on addictive tech generated hyper stimulation. Well, but also like, you know, in light of that, I'd like to talk to you a little bit about your company, but we can do that after. Oh yeah. Let's, but, let's go. <laughs> but approaching all right so so this is more personal mr corman but but what i want to know because you know i've been pitching a show that looks like is going to go somewhere at least uh, where at least we're going to write a script so i i'm just like watching that show outside of like you know i'm i'm you know joseph gordon levitt and you know me i'm a known quantity that that has a certain audience outside of that what what's the pitch for that show 
<laughs> I, I don't know if there was a ton of a pitch for that show because you're right. It, it is pretty slice of life. It's a picture of a human being. And, right. So you, you know, didn't I, have to pitch it. They, you had a deal with Apple to do I had, something. I had written a spec script and okay. they read it and they liked it. And I didn't have a deal with Apple before that. Um, but well, uh, they liked it. Did they say, where is this going to go? What's this about? They did. They we. I came on for what they call a development deal where I right. wrote a second script and, you know, wrote a, a quote unquote Bible, like sort of outlining and telling them about what I thought the rest of the season was going to do before uh, they greenlit it. So, okay. And, and, you know, how, how, how far down the road does that Bible go? How many seasons? Um, it went into some amount of detail in the first season and then broad strokes for, following seasons you know it's odd there's there's i just watched a movie by that uh that woman zoe lister jones she's an actress but she made this little film called how it ends and it's really just a a walk what's what's in the middle of covid she shot it and it's sort of a walk through what looks to be mostly silver lake and los Feliz, these abandoned streets and it's supposed to be taking place on the last day of the planet earth because there's an asteroid heading towards earth Wow. That everyone yeah. knows about, and it's going to be over. But it's also like it's also how you characterize your panic attacks in Mr. Corman. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, There's just this right. burning ball in the sky <laughs> yeah. that you don't mention, but you yeah. you assume because of one of the animated cutaways that you know it, it is an asteroid you know heading towards Earth. Yeah, yeah. But I think as a means to to sort of. Uh, make people understand what panic is and what panic feels like. It was, it's a good device, just yeah. a hanging flaming ball <laughs> in the air. Well, that, that actually came from someone I'm close to who, um, you know, the, the anxiety and or panic that the protagonist of the show, Josh experiences uh, is sort of an amalgamation of feelings. I've had feelings of other people I'm close to that I'm, you know, that I've, I've sort of experienced it secondhand through uh-huh. being with them and, and, and also, uh, uh, several of the other writers in our, in our writer's room had, it seems like everyone has either firsthand or secondhand experience with, with these kinds of feelings. It's extremely normal. And, uh, in general yes, or currently, well, it's a good question, right? You know, the, they say that the numbers are up and I could see that, especially with given what we were talking about a second ago with social media. I do think that it's an anxiety generator. I think that's part of what drives the advertising business model. And and I, I could see that the advent of social media could make anxiety rise. But I also think probably uh, people have always experienced these feelings. They're just becoming a bit more willing to talk about it now than they yeah. used to in prior generations. And I, and I think that also like, you know, you're able to sort of hit all these kind of these, uh, these marks, uh, you know, throughout the, the episodes. was it? How many are there? Six? They're 10. Six, ten, Yeah. 10. So the funeral is the last one, right? Uh, no, that's the sixth episode. Oh, so I only watched six. Aha, uh-huh, you got, you got I more thought, to go. That, I, I, but that's all I got. That's oh, I'm all they sorry had. we didn't say. Well, we just probably, we just, just finished uh, the last couple. So maybe uh, they yeah, weren't I only available got the, oh, on your link yet. Okay. Well, we'll send them um, to you if you want to see them or you can 
You can watch them later. But what? But what's sort of interesting is that you tight you touch on like it's not just social media. I mean, I'm trying to figure out like anybody else is, you know, where we're headed, you know, culturally, uh, you know, environmentally and and otherwise. In that we're all sort of we're not even coming out of COVID. It's still a reality here. So there's going to be a bunch of entertainment and art product you know, that is going to reflect on this time. Now, somehow or another, I don't know when you shot this, uh, there, there is a sense of, of dread and darkness and, and overbearing anxiety that's out of our control that kind of runs through this. I mean, I just saw the movie Pig. There's a, there's a lot of darkness in there. And then this other thing I just saw. But I don't know when you made this, but it seems maybe social media and everything else contributes to anxiety, but literally what seems to be the end of the world as we know it on a yeah. few different levels is, is a reality to, to many people. Yeah. Well, you're hundred percent right. I mean, it's to your question of when we made this. Um, and it's funny that you only saw the first six episodes because we started shooting and three weeks in lockdown arrived and we had to shut down our show. Of course, like everybody else in the first episode, uh, we were, we were almost done with shooting three episodes with having okay. three oh, so episodes okay. right. okay. uh, out of the 10 and we had to stop. We, uh, we eventually you were cross were, shooting. You were like, cr- you were shooting three at once. We were shooting a block of three different episodes and we were almost done with that block. So we huh. were almost done with three different episodes, but all three of them were slightly incomplete. I was very lucky to be working with these incredibly smart producers at a 24 who had the idea because we tried to get the show up in LA and do it safely. But we, we just, we couldn't do it in a way that was both safe and feasible. And, and so uh, the folks at a 24 had the idea for us to come to New Zealand and uh, the, the, it was just a, a godsend. I feel like I won the lottery. I feel so incredibly lucky and grateful that we got. Are to you come still here. there? I am. I am still here right now. Yeah. My, Are you ever coming just, back? <laughs> I don't know, man. I, I mean, I, I am going to come back in a little bit to do another acting job. And I'm, I'm frankly scared to come back into the pandemic. But I mean, you know, I just dropped my uh, my five-year-old off at, at school and, uh, you know, I, I, no one wears masks here. There's no cases here. The cases are zero here. And like I said, I just feel incredibly lucky. I I wonder what it would be like to spend as much time as you have away and what it's going to be like when you come back. But so getting back to it, how did COVID influence then the next three or seven episodes? Yeah. So what we actually did was. Were they written already? They they were written and we did some some pretty substantial rewriting. And we were faced with this challenge of, uh, well, if we. We don't, you know, the show was written not during a pandemic, but we don't feel like we can really just set the show not during the pandemic. This isn't a fantasy. You know, if you're writing Game of Thrones or whatever, or you're writing even just something that's set in contemporary times, but is more fantastical or, you know, spectacular. Sure. Just set it in some alternate reality where there is no pandemic. But our show is very much about real life. And so... The solution we came up with was we we kept the first seven episodes exactly how they were. Oh, see, now I missed the, so the pandemic hits in episode eight. Yeah, it's just the last three episodes, eight, nine and ten, where the, God the pandemic it. hits. Um, All right. So, yeah, we'll, we'll send you those. What the fuck happens to Josh when the pandemic hits? A guy exactly. can barely keep it together. Exactly. You know, 
just, he just says with it. day He's to like, day this life. is my exact nightmare. And, and it's it it felt cohesive with the rest of the story we were telling to have this happen. But it and, seems like he wouldn't even be able to function. Was he? Yeah, he, 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 re- he retreats to his mom's house and in, in, in when it arrives. And that's OK. That's actually that's the that's the only episode we really focus on it. We really just focus on it in one uh-huh. episode and then episode nine and ten. It's more in the background. Right. Um, but uh, yeah, he retreats to his mom's house and and his mom, you know, says, like, yes, OK, this is a challenge. But look, you find the worst version of everything and you feel like everything's a complete disaster. You're not helping yourself. You know, you how much is to- Deborah Winger's character like your real mother? Yeah, good question. Deborah Winger's character is definitely informed by my mother, but also my father. That character, she's sort of an amalgamation of my mom and my dad, because, um, you know, zooming out a bit like. The, the whole character of Josh, Mr. Corman, is a lot like me, but with a few things changed. And one of the biggest things I changed was Josh has one great parent and one problematic parent. I just like the whole balance of, you know, the fact, you know, the, the idea of a character who had who was really pursuing music and then because of pressure from within himself or expectations or family, you know, he decided that it was irresponsible and then put it on the shelf. And the fact that you chose that what he would do was teach mm-hmm. is sort of the, it's like the default for artists uh, in general. That's you know, what if, I think I would do. I mean, look, I think I'm, I feel very grateful that I've gotten to earn a living as an artist. And I also feel very lucky. And it's not to say that I don't feel like I've worked for it. I do feel I have, but I also know a lot of other people that work really hard and, and don't, don't, reap the same rewards that that i have and and so i i I really consider it very lucky that i get to do what i do for a living and i've i've certainly thought plenty about what would i do if i hadn't gotten so lucky and i just love the idea of teaching i admire teachers a, a great deal and it feels like it'd be really challenging hard work but also really rewarding in some of the same ways that being an artist is I, well, I think that it's rewarding right up until or shortly after what you choose to teach as the character of Josh. Like, I think once you get to junior high, mm-hmm. it's probably a fucking shit show. Yeah. <laughs> but like fifth grade. So show business. <laughs> no, no, I know. I know. But I think that that the challenges become exponentially more challenging once they get old enough to really. I mean, they're just starting, it seems, to push back. Right. In, in, right. in the grades you're teaching. Yeah. But I thought the sensitivity to the kids and, and the fact that like whether he didn't want whether he wanted to do that or not, because of the profound, you know, selfishness of the character and his own fear, mm-hmm. you know, selfishness in the way because he can't escape himself, that the balance of the kids, you know, it, it, it somehow manages to to humanize him and and to sort of show that, you know, he's learning something despite himself about being human yeah i i really like the idea of someone who who is a really good teacher and is doing his best and sincerely wants to do right by his students who are you know 10 11 year olds but behind his teacher self is someone who's not necessarily all grown up yet himself and who's but, but also sort of and- yeah heartbroken lost mm-hmm. you know a uh, creative person i mean it really speaks to like those memories we we all have of like you know what are our teachers are they even people you know yeah, so yeah you you don't assume your teachers have lives or are humans sure. or that 
You know what I mean? I remember this is ringing a bell. I haven't thought of this in a long time. I feel like I read a kid's book when I was young where uh, a kid goes and sees the, their teacher's house. Like, right. And, and it's a, and it's mind blowing to the student. Like, Oh, you don't just live at school. Like you have, yeah, right. You oh, have yeah. a house. It's like, I have a house. Or you see him at the supermarket or somewhere. Right. You're like, Oh my God, they're out yeah. in the wild. Um, but yeah, so, but how much of, like, because I think, honestly, you know, even looking at the 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 sort of extensive resume of your acting career, that it seems like this is you, you know, being a fully realized artist. You know, acting's one thing, but I mean, this the the way this thing moves and the way it's written and and the 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 sort of vision of it as, as a director visually. I mean, you know, you really kind of like you've you've created a a very specific. And unique tone. There's a there's a certain menace to the all the hand holding uh, camera, you know. Mm-hmm. And there's a certain yeah. you know the the sort of close ups get a little claustrophobic. Yeah. And then you've created this space to sort of depart into fantasy, you know, animation and even musical, uh, yeah. which I think you see a little more now. And I you know in general, but I I don't think I've ever noticed it like this. That you know because the scene with you and deborah winger where you can't quite emotionally communicate with your mother and then all of a sudden we're in a musical which yeah. was uh, that was an original piece of music correct yep yeah nathan johnson our composer and i collaborated to make that song but like you you know you're sort of using all these filmic devices yet it still stays grounded in the humanity of the situation and the guy who plays your roommate's quite good Arturo, he's amazing. Oh man, well, what you're saying just means a lot to me. Thank you. I, I, uh, and you're right. This does, in many ways, this project has felt like a culmination of kind of everything I've learned for the 30 yeah. years that I've been doing this, and 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 really my taste. And I've 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 worked on so many things where I'm I'm helping a, a filmmaker realize their vision. That's what you do as an actor. You're you're there for the filmmaker and you're providing the ingredients that they need to tell their story. And of course, you bring yourself to it, just like all the actors are bringing themselves to Mr. Corman and like you mentioned Arturo or or Deborah Winger and and all the actors. They they made it so much better than it was in my head. Uh, and and good actors do that. And I feel like I've I've had the opportunity to do that and worked with great directors who were collaborative. But still, it's always when you're acting, it's always the work of the filmmaker. Right. It's really you're helping to do. But going back, I mean, when you think about it, I mean, how well did you know your grandfather, uh, uh, Michael Gordon? Oh, good question. Not very well. Um, he was the kind of guy that, so that's my mom's dad. But he directed a lot of like big studio movies. I mean, like, he did, I mean, yeah. he did Pillow Talk, like Doris Day, Rock Hudson. Yeah. You know, uh, he did a lot. He did a lot of movies. He did. Uh, as before a director. that, he did, he, he did, he did Cyrano de Bergerac, which is a, a that's very a big different movie. Thing, Pillow Talk. Pillow Talk. Who was it? And who was that? Jose Ferrar? Jose who was, Ferrar, who, who won the Oscar and is, I think, even called out in, uh, Annie Hall or some Woody Allen movie for that Jose Ferrer won instead of Marlon Brando for on the waterfront and that it was a oh, right, right, right. It was for upset, Cyrano. But, yeah. Yeah, but uh he was actually blacklisted after that, um, because he had been to some meetings. Uh, your grandfather. My grandfather was, yeah. And uh some meetings um that, you know, bore the name communism. And at that time, the meetings he was going to were really just people getting together and trying to talk about 
what today you would call social justice, you know, trying to. But also unionizing the film industry, correct? Yeah. Well, yeah. Unions were a big part of social justice, yeah. of making sure that labor right. wasn't abused by the big companies and, and you know, trying to end poverty and things like that. Um, but uh, yeah, the the U.S. government felt very threatened by the McCarthy. This is the McCarthy here, the McCarthy era. Exactly. He was blacklisted. And it's one of the darker moments of the American government where it really went back on the principles sure. that the, the founders of the country imbued into the Constitution, the right to the freedom of speech, the right to freedom of assembly, the right to hold whatever opinion you want to hold. Um, Did you know him, though? I knew him a little bit. He was the kind of guy that he died when I was 10. And I, I, I wish he had stayed alive a little longer because I feel like by the time I was, say, 14 or 15, we would have connected much more because I would have read more things and been more ready to have the kind of conversations that I think he liked to have. He wasn't the kind of guy that could get down on the level of a five-year-old or a 10-year-old. He, uh -huh. It's just not the way he did it. Like I, I remember I played him in chess once cause I was learning chess and he just like destroyed me and, and barely explained how, you know, like yeah, right. he, he wasn't, he wasn't, uh, he wasn't warm and fuzzy in that wasn't way. Wasn't a so, kid guy. Yeah. He wasn't a kid guy. He's old fashioned, I guess. But your mother, that's as, as much of a, a lefty Jewish upbringing that you can have <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> is, is to have a blacklisted father. Right. Yes. And she kind of stuck with that. Right. Yeah, she my both my parents is where they they met was working at a lefty public radio station called KPFK in Los Angeles. Pacifica? They're both Yeah, Pacifica Radio exactly. That's still around. Um, that's still it like, is. KPFK. Yep. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah, that's a very significant uh presence that particular, you know, it's sort of like the as long as it's left, it goes. Yeah, yeah you know, like doesn't matter how far out you go, but as long as it's left, we could do it. I, I will agree with you, and I, I and I say this as a staunch leftist. Yeah, uh, I probably don't agree with a hundred percent of the rhetoric on on Pacifica Radio, but um, were either of them on air? My dad was. My dad was. Uh, um, yeah, the, uh, one of the main news readers and news editors at KPFK. Oh, okay, uh, is he still my around? Mom worked there as well. My dad. Yep. Yeah. He he's no longer a journalist. He had a few different careers. Um, he for the last number of decades uh, has run a, a software company, actually. Huh. Uh, he started one a long time before it became such a, you know, before Silicon Valley was Silicon Valley. And your mom and, um, and my mom quit working when she had kids and uh, and was a full time parent which I admire greatly as well. You know, uh, not that, not that anybody necessarily should or shouldn't do that. Everybody's got to find their own life and their own, make their own choices, of course. And I respect any given, I'm a parent who works, you know, yeah. but uh, my mom, you took some time off though. Stop. I did. I was able to, I'm lucky. Uh, you know, I was able to take quite a bit of time off when I first had kids. Uh, I wish that everybody was able to do that. So they at least know who you were when you came home. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Did your mom run for office as well? She did. Yeah, she was. Uh, she ran under the Peace and Freedom Party, which was, and they think she was a founding member of that political party, which still exists, if I'm not mistaken. Kind of a uh -huh. far left. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Which at that time, the main their main platform was trying to end the war in Vietnam. But how do you like? You started acting when you were like what a month old? I mean, like, how does that? <laughs> 
Like how does uh... I was six? I was six when I started doing my first job, and it was very much, uh, you know, I give a ton of credit to both my parents, especially my mom, helped me enormously. But one of the ways she helped me was she never ever pressured me to and, do what and... to stop or go. Do either either way. She, yeah. she she's she always just said, hey, this is something you love doing. And I loved doing a few different things. You know, I also went and did a lot of gymnastics when I was a little kid and I uh-huh. played sports and, you know, did piano lessons. I, I, I never connected with the piano as much because I didn't like reading music. But um, but actually, my music teacher who taught piano, she also taught a choir, which I really liked. I was in the choir. And then she also started teaching this kind of like community theater. We would put on musicals Mm. and we'd be a group of kids putting on Peter Pan and Grease and Guys and Dolls and things like that. And I played the Scarecrow and I played, you know, Nicky and whatever. And, and, uh, and I loved old timey suits. Yeah. Yeah. Little kids in old timey grown up suits. What could be better than that? It's the best. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, and, there, you know, then luck comes in. I happen to be doing this in Los Angeles, you know, and I, I grew up in a suburb of L.A. Which part? Where'd you grow? I grew up in the valley in uh, Sherman Oaks. Oh, yeah. I went right to over there. Van Nuys High. A couple of the kids that were in my community theater classes went on auditions and their manager asked my mom if I wanted to go on auditions. And so you were, you were recruited out of, out of playing scarecrow. Yeah. (laughs) Elementary school musicals. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Uh, And, and, you know, I, I, it's just a privilege to have been born in a house where those auditions were, you know, a half hour drive away. So after your mom wasn't working, my mom wasn't working. My, my brother was already, quite grown because he's six and a half years older than, than I am. And so she would drive me to auditions and I would go on a number of auditions every week, sometimes two a day. I went on hundreds. I think I've probably, I think I've probably been on a thousand auditions. Cause you wanted life. to, or was she sort of like, it was just, she was helping facilitate this. Oh, you had a manager. Okay. Right. Well, there was a, there was a manager or who an would, agent. you know, yeah, give the info and then yeah. I got an agent. Yeah. But, um, I absolutely wanted to. And in fact, whenever, uh, whenever I would say, oh, I don't, I don't want to go her, her thing was always, okay, look, you committed to going into this today. Yeah. And it wouldn't be right of me to teach you that you can just flake on a commitment. So you should go today. But after that, you don't have to do this. We can stop. I can call Susan. Susan was the name of my agent. I can call Susan and tell her that you don't want to do this. It's perfectly fine. It's 100% cool with me. I love you no matter what. I think you're great no matter what. And you're doing great things no matter what. We don't have to do this. Yeah. And um, But I just really loved it. Ever since, you know, there, there's a story about the first time, the first job I ever did was this peanut butter commercial. and uh, And it was sort of a difficult shoot. There was fake rain and I had to sit there and kind of get rained on. And it was kind of long. I was only six years old. Yeah. But I loved it so much that when we we came out of the soundstage that evening and I saw that it was nighttime, I turned to my mom and said, whoa, it's nighttime already? Because the time had gone by so far. I just loved being part of that 
team, you know, part of a crew, part of a set where everyone's got their job to do and everyone's working together to make this thing happen. I loved it so much. So you love the whole collaborative nature of it. That's exactly it, man. I, I think I always just really, I loved the acting, but I also just loved the whole process. And even from a very young age, I was always fascinated with all the different jobs. And what about like training? Did you do any? Well, not not formally so much, although I did have one acting teacher. There was a, um, a teacher named Kevin McDermott, uh, who I I still think about all the time. I'm, I'm still in some, it's been a few years since I've talked to him, but he, I, I really consider him one of the great influences in my life. Kevin, as well as uh, the music teacher I mentioned who taught choir and, and community theater, her, her name is Miss Karen. And both of those are two teachers that I consider just hugely impactful. At the same time, that was the same time of your life? Roughly, yeah, similar time in my life, yeah. And, so you were like um, a kid and Kevin was, uh, you took a drama class or he was part of the guy who made the plays? produced him or directed he was him? he was a totally separate operation than miss karen who did the plays he was an acting class and and kids in la who were doing acting like i was took classes with him oh so it was outside of school it was outside of school both okay. of these were outside of school oh okay, actually okay. yeah and uh and kevin was just a brilliant brilliant teacher that he didn't talk down to us and he he didn't teach the academic version of acting like he never told us okay this is what stanislavski said or anything like that but he taught us about what it meant to put yourself in someone else's shoes to create a character that was different from yourself and really be real really be that character we used to do an exercise in kevin's class where we would spend weeks creating a character and we would come up with all their backstory and who they were. And every character had to end up for some reason in a uh, juvenile detention um, psychology group. Because uh, Kevin actually, he had a background in, he used to work in, in juvenile detention centers and huh. things like that. Yeah. And, uh, and he so it was had up to you friend. to create this. We had to create a character and he would help us. And over the course of weeks, we would do different exercises of how to create a character and how to embody that character. And we would do improvisation, like working on, this is when I'm seven, the, you know, working on being that character and refining huh. who that character was. And we would write down things about our character. And then once, once we had our character all done, he would bring a friend of his who was an actual child psychologist who actually ran uh, group therapy sessions with kids. And I was seven, but most of the kids were older in this class. And she would come, we would, we would get into character and then she would come. She would never meet us as actors and she would run a group therapy session and we would stay in character for 45 minutes straight. Holy man. Doing a real group therapy session as run by not an actress, but a group, a real therapist. Interesting. And then she, the group, the, the session would end. She would leave. And only then after she left, would we Great character. So she really treated us as those characters. And I, I think about that exercise all the damn time. Walshmit was her name. Dr. Walshmit was uh -huh. the name of the therapist. And you think about that as a point of reference to building characters throughout yes. your career. Exactly. Yes. I, I've never heard anything like that. Yeah. Kevin, Kevin McDermott. Uh, he's a, a real talk about teaching a real brilliant teacher. I'll say, I mean, it, you know, to deal with young people and that is the arc of like a, a four week process. Yeah. Really interesting. Yeah. Huh. 
Yeah, I, I, I highly recommend it for anybody, whether you, you're interested in being an actor or not. Just think, it, just go into extreme depth on what it would be like to be someone else. Someone other than yourself. I, yeah, I have a hard time holding on to the, my who I am. You know, I I, I, I get nervous <laughs> about acting. It's like, what what if it sticks? You know, I, I really yeah. think I think it took you know like Pacino years to shake Scarface. But yeah. um, well, yeah, <laughs> yeah. You can see I actually I did a I got to do a segment of Sesame Street while I was shooting Don John, and yeah. it's ridiculous because I sound a little bit like that. <laughs> Don John character creepy guy talking to Murray the Muppet. It's really, really funny. <laughs> what would you think is the first role that you've had on either television or in a movie where you know you were really able to apply and feel successful in executing you know a character? Like when did you know? Although you you may have loved it and you were doing a lot of stuff, when did you really feel like you, you know you sunk into it and you had a nice meaty part and you you know you really kind of showed up for work? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, because you're right. When when you're when you're doing acting jobs, oftentimes you're doing stuff that doesn't really give you that opportunity mm -hmm. to really mm -hmm. be creative or express yourself or, yeah. or sink your teeth into it. Um, well, the first thing that comes to mind is I did a movie of the week. They were called back then a movie yeah. of the week. Is, you know, this is for television, broadcast television, but it's like a feature length movie that plays with commercials, and they called it movie of the week. And uh, it was one of those rip from the headlines TV movies um, at the time was called Gregory K, which was a, a boy who had who filed to divorce his parents. Oh, yeah. His I remember parents that. were, were <laughs> yeah. both um, right. Kind of dysfunctional and abusive parents. And he had been in foster care and he really liked this foster family and he wanted to stay with his foster family. But his parents wanted him back. And he uh, he filed to divorce his parents. And uh, and so we made a TV movie about that, and I got to play him. It's the first time I played a, a protagonist in in a in a movie, and it was a really heavy role because you're you know this is a kid who had suffered child abuse and who's you know really, and you're like 13? in a high stakes situation. I was twelve, yeah, uh -huh. I was twelve, yeah, and um that that's the first time I. That's the first thing that popped in my head when you asked your question. And that that uh, seems like a completely perfect way to apply kevin's method exactly yeah and i and i did i i thought about his method all the time i think i talked to kevin about it um i've i've talked to kevin about things much much even later in life do you as do well. backstories all the time yeah. for characters um i mean y yes is the answer um it depends on the character and it depends on the material and sometimes i do it more than other times uh but um but yeah and certainly with Mr. Corman, th this is where, and in a way, what you're saying about kind of the culmination of all these things, this is where writing and acting sort of blend into each other. The process of creating this character of Mr. Corman absolutely was drawn from wh what I've known how to do ever since learning it from Kevin of, of creating this character. And you apply those same processes to writing yeah as then to acting right and and also you know you i i imagine that are you writing these alone no i well i, I wrote the first two spec scripts alone but then we brought on four other writers and uh we wrote the we wrote the rest together and uh they were 
awesome. And, and it was a really, I think, really fruitful collaboration. And, and I definitely don't think that the scripts would have been nearly as good <laughs> if I had been alone versus working uh, with Bruce and Rosa and Julia and Roja. Yeah. And it, like, it's sort of amazing that, you know, your entire process that, you know, you were one of these people, you never stopped working. And as a child actor, you know, doing angels on the outfield. And I remember, I remember the juror, but those were big, oh, yeah. mo- big movies. Right. So, uh-huh. so you really kind of like, you know, you, you got a toehold in and you didn't really ever stop working all the way through adolescence into adulthood. And it's sort of astounding, isn't it? I stopped uh, when I went to college. So at, you know, after, after what, 12 years at 18 years old, you quit for a little while? Yeah. And that was the longest. My freshman year of college is the longest break I had ever taken. And, and then I got back into it. And, and then actually ha- having kids was, uh, I took another break. And then that was an even longer break because I took I took two years off and uh, that after, was, was that after third rock. Yep. It was at the end of third rock. In fact, they, they let me out of third rock early cause I wanted to go to college and you I did 131 I, oh, episodes of third rock. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I wasn't in all of the episodes in the final season cause they let me out early. All right. So what? 115. <laughs> yeah. Something like that. Right. right. <laughs> so yeah. you know, with that, and that was still back in the day, where syndication meant something. So you were good. Yeah. Right. Yeah. <laughs> I, I made money as, as a kid. I'm very, very lucky too. And, and that, that allowed me then to kind of choose what I wanted to do after that. And because the, the, the next bunch of parts I did, I didn't make money. <laughs> right. But you were also fortunate not, you didn't have crazy parents. You, exactly. Well, that's, that's my biggest piece of good fortune. Cause it's true. A, a lot of child actors, sadly, um, and, and look, I, I, it is, it's important to say, I also, I didn't have crazy parents, but I also had parents who, you know, my, my dad earned, a a, a strong living. So right. right. there wasn't that kind of pressure. A, a lot of families end up in show business and if they're, you know, if they don't have the kind of income that my family did, it's, it's harder to blame them for getting sucked into you know, spending the money that, that their child makes. It's, you know, I, sure. I wish, sure. <laughs> I wish like, we lived yeah. in a world where, where uh, everyone, everyone had more money <laughs> and yeah. a few of the super rich people had less. Well, you know, and also again, like what I was saying is that the way you handle kids in this thing. Now, again, I don't watch a lot of television with kids now that I think about it or a lot of shows with kids, but I think that the respect you give the kids in the classroom and also the sort of attention. I thought that the episode where it's just all Arturo. Yeah. Is that his name? Yeah. Which Arturo, one, you know, just, yeah like, and that's like, what is that? That's like episode five. Yeah. Four. Episode, episode four. four. You just sort of like, all right, this is going to be the roommates episode, which I loved. I love that yeah. TV is now so untethered from any, you know, kind of network model that it's respectful of the audience to, to realize like they can handle this. Do you know that's what I mean? why I wanted to do a serial a series was because of exactly what you're talking about. I feel like when I was last time I was on TV in, in the nineties on third rock from the sun, TV shows were much more rigidly formulaic. And now there's this appetite for, for TV shows to do kind of what movies like I grew up loving 
the movies that came out of Sundance in the 90s, you know, Swingers or Sling Blade or Big Night or Train Spotting or, you know, these kinds of movies. You've done a few of those kind of movies. I was, I, I, and it was like a huge, huge thing for me to get to finally be in movies that, that played at Sundance because that's what I always wanted. Throughout my time working on Third Rock from the Sun, I loved working on that show, but I also, what I really wanted to do was do weirder indie Sundance-like movies. And uh, finally, then in, in my 20s, I got to do it. What was the first one you did? I did a movie called Manic. Um, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. That, uh, that, was, that went to Sundance. That was the first movie I was in that went to Sundance. So your whole thing was just like, after Third Rock, you're like, I'm good. You know, I, I've, you, you know, I've done good work. It was a funny show. Everyone knows who I am. Made, it, the money's going to keep coming in as long as people, they keep selling that show. So why not, you know, take some risks and do what I want to do? That was, that was it. Yeah. Yes. That's exactly it. And you did and Manic. Not. Which one do you think was the, the most successful one of those experiments for you as an actor? Well, uh, as, I mean, that one, Manic was a really great, and in fact, speaking of, of the group therapy sessions I was talking about that we did in Kevin's class, Manic was like that in real life. We made a movie basically about, it was kind of perfect for me having uh -huh. had that background. Um, and Manic's where I met Zoe Deschanel. That was our first movie together. Um, and uh, Don Cheadle is in that movie also. It's, it's really great. I, I'm really proud of that one. Um, and that was the movie that then Ryan Johnson saw when he cast me in Brick. And then that Greg Araki also saw Manic when he cast me in Mysterious Skin. And those two movies were kind of the ones that allowed me to, to you know, then go on from there. Uh, yeah, you know, to be an adult was, actor. Yeah, yeah Brick I mean, Mysterious Skin. People yeah. love Brick. I, you're like, so that was sort of your baptism into grown-up movies. And then you had this... You're still having a, a, a pretty amazing run with the grown-up movies. Well, thank you. Yeah, it's I, you know I I took some time away. Yeah. Oh, so you, what happened with college? Well, college. So, Brick and Mysterious Skin is kind of what I did right after college. Did you finish um, college though? No, I stopped. I, I, I was enjoying college, but actually, you want to know what um, changed it for me uh, was I got my first copy of Final Cut Pro, the editing software. Yeah. And uh, I got that for myself for my 21st birthday. And I got so hooked on editing. If, I don't, have you ever spent any time editing? Not hands-on, sitting there next to somebody doing it, but not. Yeah. So, I mean, sitting next to somewhere, someone doing it is, you'll get, you'll get it. It's, it's just, it's so thrilling because you're finally making the thing. Like, yeah. shooting is great, but when you're editing, you're actually making a, a movie yeah. <laughs> you know shooting you're still just like kind of you're getting raw footage and you're like well eventually i guess this will be a movie but when you're editing it really starts so to that's feel the, like that just movie. it was you getting final cut that you know made you realize like i'm going to be a filmmaker now it, that's it yeah i i was so in love with editing and i would just stay up all night doing it and i would be posed with the you know this choice of like, well, okay, I could write this paper for the class I'm in, or I could, you know, keep editing and finish my shorts. Yeah. It was, it was shortly thereafter that I uh, dropped out of college and, and, and said, I want to, I got to get back into this. I know what I want to do. 
I always knew I wanted to do this. And now I'm really going to I'm really, really going to go for it. And, to direct. and my goal was to be a filmmaker. Yeah. yeah. And I thought, all right, if I'm going to do that, the best way in is for me to get back into acting. And like as you do it, you know, even heading into I know you made a couple of shorts, but you know, the first feature you did was Don John. That's right. And you wrote that, too. Yeah. So like heading into that and now here we are with this series. I mean, when you look back at, you know, a life onset, you know, when do you really feel, was it after you quit college where you really started paying attention to what was going on behind the camera or were you always sort of on top of that? I always was into that from the beginning. From Like I said, like that first peanut butter commercial, I was just fascinated with all the different people and what they were doing, what, what the camera crew was doing, what they were doing with the props, how they made it rain, all of it. All of it was always fascinating. The me. lights is the thing, man. Like the, yeah. the guy, yeah. like the guy, the, the 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 DP. You're like, what are they? How do they know? Yeah, this? that it does. It still seems like magic. Like they yeah. disappear for an hour somehow, and then yeah. and I, it's true. I I could I, I probably could do almost almost any job on a set. Yeah, but a a. a gaffer or i don't know that i could actually do a good job as a gaffer what about a dp yeah. could you be a dp if i had a good gaffer i think I could, I could be. <laughs> you, got, you always gotta have the guy to, that you can tell to do the thing that gives you the yeah. options to <laughs> yeah. make give you exactly. choices right right yeah right. uh-huh yeah so again when you look at the evolution outside of of kevin's class what were the directors like because it seems like this this series mr corman is you know, it's very stylized, but it's not it's not stylized in a way where it seems like you're trying too hard or 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 trying to get a lot in. It, it seems to be appropriate to the way the character sees the world and, and the world you've created. So but it is, you know, nice. there is a thing you're doing, you know, with yeah, the camera. I, I really wanted to. Yeah, it, it's interesting. Speaking of directors, they were influential. And we just talked about Brick. So Ryan Johnson, who wrote and directed Brick, that's his first movie. His latest movie was Knives Out, The Last right. Jedi. He and I did Looper together. He's a really wonderful artist and a, just a fantastic human being and a good friend. And he was one of the first people I showed the spec script of Mr. Corman to. And when he read it, uh, at that point, it, was, it wasn't as fanciful. It was more just pretty grounded and, and realistic. Uh-huh. And he, his feedback was... Look, I think this is great. It feels very real, but I also I know you and I know what you love doing and you could you you could give yourself the license to be more playful here. You could, you know, what are the things that you would really want to do if you could do anything? Mm. And that's where things like a musical number or a fantasy fight sequence or, you know, falling out the window and flying through space, like these kinds of, you know, these yeah. kinds of magic or a, like the meteor you talked about, this looming meteor is about to destroy humanity. Um, all sort of stemmed from that great piece of feedback that Ryan gave me, like give yourself the liberty to play, do whatever the fuck you want. And, uh, and I did. And, and, that's that really kind of turned on this other side of the show like you're talking about where we kind of a lot of it is very grounded and realistic but you know in my experience real life doesn't always feel realistic <laughs> real life sometimes really feels larger than life 
and and those those sequences are addressing that. Well, I, I think that you know that juxtaposing the kind of claustrophobic filmmaking you do with the character when he's not in a fantasy sequence uh, is mm-hmm. a good a good counter to that. It makes the other right. thing work. Well, can, actually, can I ask you a question? Because speaking sure, of, like you, you brought up, you know, things feeling real. So we both. We, we we both made shows like largely about ourselves, but I did I would I would not want to make a show with my name like right. you know Josh Corman does sound sort of like Joseph Gordon, but to me I I can't talk about myself like my personal life like that. I, I'm happy to talk about my work life and my my creative self, but when it comes to you know my family or or my love life for things like that i i it would drive me insane to to be open about that and and so when you make marin you put your name on it is is that not scary for you to to like open yourself up like that so much i guess so i mean but you know that's always been the way i do it yeah i i think there are there's definitely a liability to it and there's definitely something to be said about protecting your real life and and keeping the art and and you know your expression you know w- within your creative output as opposed to putting your life on the line for it there is elements of privacy boundaries you know vulnerability all that stuff and, and also well, so that's the thing i always i always imagine like this is gonna this is gonna haunt me something's gonna come back but like have you had moments where Whereas I don't know where where someone knows something about you and you're like oh god I or I don't know maybe I'm inventing this as as like worse than it would really no be. dude I, I mean guess- I do this podcast all the time you know I talk about myself in my stand up in the show and like I can't tell you that it's a better way to do it because you do have all of a sudden you have a very intimate one sided relationship with a lot of people now I'm yeah. no George, Joseph Gordon Levitt you know I would I would say that the people that actually watched Marin is is far fewer. Then, then, then you would assume I was on IFC. I it wasn't know. it? wasn't like a hit show, dude. And also, <laughs> the 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 you know the life I was living at that time was sort of it was an anomaly, you know, to be this guy who's making a podcast in his garage and have this stand up career and ex wives and whatever. Um, I thought that you know, kind of making that a character, uh, you know, it wasn't exactly how things played out. It was based on my life, but I just thought I was doing it like any other comic would do a show, but I'm right. more, I'm more revealing on the podcast and just talking and, yeah. or in on Instagram live and stuff, but I do volunteer it because I seem to want to have that, that, that type of relationship with my audience. But, you know, you don't have anything to fall back on. You, you know, you don't have the same type of uh, private life. And also, you know, you kind of are required to really show up for everything you're doing in a way that's much more personal than it would be if you were, you know, slightly different in in terms than the character. Yeah. Yeah. But you're doing it the right way, dude. I don't, I don't know. I wonder sometimes cause I, cause I, I do feel like, I mean, I, I feel like it's right for me, but I also do feel that if I were more more forthcoming about the intimate details of my life, probably more people would 
connects with that. I mean, it's people can't help it. They're they're drawn to that sort of transparency sometimes but they're also drawn to, drawn to entertainment i mean some people are sort of like there's definitely a large contingent of people that are like yeah there's a little too much information buddy can't you just uh, do the funny <laughs> stuff you know right <laughs> you That's know a lot of people enjoy the distance of 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 entertainment of knowing that it's a character they can actually in, invest more where you don't want them walking out which i'm sure has happened to me many times uh, of, a, of a show or a movie going like God, I hope Joseph's okay. I mean, that, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that, that was pretty heavy, man. I'm a little worried about him. I always try to, like, uh, I always try to not know about the artists that I love, especially right. musicians. I mean, it's also true about actors and, and comics, et cetera. Oh, believe me. I, I, like, like, there was recently, um, there have been documentaries about some of my favorite musicians, like uh-huh. Nina Simone right. or right. Harry Nilsson. Yeah, or, yeah. And I I go out of my way to avoid those documentaries because I can't, I just don't want to know. Well, those two are like fairly, you know, they, they, those two are, are tragic stories in a way that doesn't make you, it makes you deeply empathetic and, and heartbroken for those people. It's better that than seeing a documentary like, that guy's a fucking asshole. Yeah. How yeah. Did I like- <laughs> I've watched, I, I, I've seen, I've. I'm not going to say who, but I recently was watching a documentary of, of like a, a famous musician. And I was like, oh, God, I don't know if I can listen to this music anymore. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, that, uh, you know, the, that was so funny to me in in Mr. Corman. The, the, you chose to be Arrow for for uh, for Halloween. Oh, yeah. You're a fan of the point. Love the point. Well, I, I'm a fan of his. I, I don't know that yeah. like I'm as deeply into that record as I am some of the, some of the <laughs> other ones. But conceptually, yeah. I just saw how esoteric and how utterly irritating that this guy is going to put himself <laughs> in, in a costume that he can't even really explain without yeah. looking. You know. <laughs> <laughs> like it he's, makes it, he's he's an art snob. That's what he is. He's right, a, but it makes snob. it it makes him like he's not able to laugh at himself, but you make it so we can kind of laugh at the character <laughs> you know which is good it's good well i i did dress up as arrow one time for halloween a few years ago uh yeah that, that was true but, <laughs> and and no one no no one no one knew what it was and the, that can't they, they thought i was sonic sense. the hedgehog or they thought that i was whatever a smurf but i i sort of really liked also the way that you create that that Dax, the Dax character, who is sort of like an aspiring influencer, I would imagine yep. is what you would call him, is yep, yep. is 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 a tragic character. Yeah, you know, just yep. in terms of you know how he's approaching life, and he there's but he and he kind of sees it, but he kind of doesn't until he breaks down. But like that, that is the future. You know, that is the future concern. You know, what is that life based on? Right. Yes, yeah, it's, it's really true. By the way, just tangentially, the guy who played that character, Dax, I don't know if you know Logic. Um, you know, he's he's a very he's like a Grammy nominated musician and rapper. That guy oh, yeah. this is his first this is his first time acting. He did an amazing job. He's a great actor. And I think he's going to go on to do great things. Um, I, I love that you're picking up on that character and that it, it's something I think about all the time. I gave a a TED talk actually about this. I always feel self conscious when I mention the fact that I gave God, a TED you talk, are the character. Go ahead. Yeah, <laughs> I, I told you I was. Uh, but about about how craving attention can destroy your creativity, and uh, being an influencer, 
you're signing up for a product that will get you addicted to attention. And if you're, if you're trying to really embark on a creative process and express yourself and make art, it makes sense that you care about an audience and what an audience thinks. But if you're overly swayed by that, if at the very beginning of your creative process, you're thinking about likes and follows because your brain has been trained into those dopamine hits and you're a fiend for the, the addiction to the, the attention that you get, it's going to corrupt your creative process. You're not going to be able to dig deep down into your unique self. It's going to corrupt your, 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 your sense of humility entire. It's going to corrupt more than just your creativity. Yes. Yeah. That, that's just, but I mean, it. that's a good point. I mean, like when you talk about, you know, wondering whether or not you should offer more of yourself, what are some elements of your life that you would like to be more transparent or, or, or explore in a, in, in a more personal way. I, I don't want to, <laughs> I, but I, I wonder about it sometimes. I mean, and, and it's true. Like, look, there, there is a lot of very personal things in this show. It's yeah. just, it, it's just through a filter, through a process where, um, you know, that, that protects my privacy, I guess, and and the privacy of the people around me. Um, But, uh, you know, I, I, my, my partner, my wife, Tasha is, she's a very private person and um, she's, she just gets terrified at the thought of having people, strangers out there. Right. Yeah. Knowing about her, knowing yeah. things about her, well, knowing weird things about our, yeah. our kids, like, sure. yeah, and that makes sense. And uh, I love that about her. Actually, I I feel some of the same thing. Um, Keeps but, you in check uh, too, right? It, it, absolutely. Um, yeah. But uh, yes, exactly. It 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 helps to not go down the slippery slope of of being addicted to the attention that comes with you know, working as an entertainer because uh, that's, I, I really think that's a dangerous slippery slope that you see a lot of artists fall down is you get, it's, it's addictive. It's like a drug. There's, there's a, there's a song fame is a drug. And I think it's incredibly true. And the, the scary part about social media as it exists today is that it's just a mass proliferation of that drug to everybody on earth including kids including young people just getting fed this highly addictive drug that's ultimately like a drug empty that will never really satisfy you you'll never you you get a a quick spike of euphoria and then you you fall and then you want more and that's that's what fame is yeah and uh, i'm so happy i've I've never had to experience that Yeah, dude, you're you're interviewing presidents, man. Come on, you, yeah. you, you, well, I've you, I've carved out a little a little world for myself, but there's there's no risk of me getting my own sneaker line. That doesn't mean that you're not subject to the same that. Oh kind no, of no, I got addiction. Yeah, I got. Oh yeah, that's true. That's true. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That yeah. that because that's the thing. I think whether whether you're. Oh yeah, look, I do Instagram you know, lives, and I'm I'm highly aware of how many people watch them. Yeah, me too. It's really addictive. They make it addictive on purpose. I get and, it, man. 
And I think that so everybody's subject to that addiction, whether they're sure, you know, whether they have 500 followers or 50 followers well, or they, I 50 guess, million followers. Right. But the trick is like, you know, don't base your life on it. Like, and I exactly. think that is the, the tragedy of that character, Dax. Exactly. Exactly. But uh, all in, all said, what now just try to explain to me quickly so I understand what hit record. That's your production company. What do they do? Because I even looked at the I looked up the awards they won for innovative interactive uh, media. And I don't know what that what is it? What are you doing? Yeah, sure. So there, there's an online community. Uh, we say hit record. It's sort of a wordplay on hit record. Um, oh, so okay, and, hit, uh, hit record, right? The idea of our community is people collaborating. So a lot of online creativity is about look at me, look at what I made, and on Hit Record we really try to emphasize what can we make together. Okay. So we made all kinds of things. We've, like you said, we made TV. I feel shows like you're just... talking to an investor right now. I'm interested. Keep going. Yeah. Well, <laughs> I I have spoken to investors my fair share. So it's yeah. your your apps and your observation uh -huh. and. How how can I make wait? Give me some notes. How can I make this less investory? <laughs> no, I you're explaining it. I just want to know what it is. So collaborative. You want to make it more collaborative. And what is yeah, the product? Is how does it? How now? So how am I going to make a, a return on what I invest? <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm not going to talk to an investor. But so if if you come if you come to hit record, you download yeah. our app or you come to our site, you'll see all these different projects that are going on, and the projects are all open and collaborative. And some of them are just little projects of people just having fun, being creative together. They could be telling stories. They could be drawing, writing, making music, all the above. Uh -huh. um, and then some of the projects are big, you know, high profile projects like like that we've won Emmys for. We won two Emmys, yeah. one for a TV show we made a few years ago and, and one for a TV show uh, we made last year. The the one we made last year was actually on on YouTube. So, but YouTube Originals. Is and, it for uh, kids? Well, it was it was kind of family friendly. It was definitely it was we definitely wanted it to be inspiring for families who were stuck at home uh -huh. during lockdown and wanting to like do something creative together. And be like, hey, you know, here's something creative you could do together. You could draw this. You could take a picture like this, or you could sing along with this, or. You know, it it's sort of like that. And it is very wholesome, I will say. The whole the whole vibe on Hit Record is is extremely positive and wholesome and safe. And nice. the the point is that it's somewhere where it, it's kind of an antidote to Instagram or YouTube or these places that are more focused on fame and followers and um and sort of racing to the bottom and trying to get attention and more about like let's let's not focus on on you know becoming influencers let's focus on just the joy of being creative together with a community of that's great and and your folks how the, how they uh, feel how have they evolved with your success oh that's interesting like my my uh <laughs> my mom was just reminding me you know, anytime anybody asks her like how oh you must they or says like oh you must be very proud of of your son. She always says, I'm very proud of both my sons. I've, you know, I have an older brother. He's, he actually died, uh, 11 years ago. Just oh. the saddest thing in my life. And that's terrible. Um, How, yeah. What happened? It was, uh, yeah, it, it, it was an, an accident. Um, yeah, it was, okay. it, it shouldn't have happened. <laughs> okay. Sorry, um, man. But no, thank you. And he, he was very, dear to me and and he actually he and i started hit record together mm. and it's part of why it's so important to me and and one of the things he was always really big on was just encouraging people to kind of 
find themselves and be themselves and mm. be the the most i don't know adventurous version of themselves yeah, yeah. He, he his story was he was a pretty introverted person growing up and throughout like most of his 20s and uh he was a software developer and sort of shy and he made a decision at a certain point in his life i don't want to be shy anymore i want to i want to come out of my shell and he proactively and almost i would say systematically did that and he it's funny because when you when i talk to people who knew him when he was in his 30s they're like wait he was shy because he's like he was the most outgoing huh. like swashbuckling crazy guy that that you've ever met and um he became uh really into photography and fire spinning uh and he eventually started teaching fire spinning what is and fire spinning you know, like you see people like holding, like swinging around a ball and chain that's on fire okay. kind of thing, okay. like a burning man kind sure, of thing. Sure, sure, sure. Um, it's, it's, it's sort of a, it's a way of dancing. It, it actually goes back, they call it poi, which is actually, a, I learned here in New Zealand is a, is a Maori word because uh -huh. it's uh, a lot of Polynesian Pacific Islander people fire, did a lot of fire spinning. Um, so that he really became this other person. He, yeah, he really came out of his shell. And so he was, so for him, hit record was a lot about that, was a lot about people who had a thing inside them. That like, I know I want to express myself, whether it's, you know, I want to write or I want to act or I want to make music, or I want to draw, I want whatever it is. Yeah. I know I want to do it, but man, I'm not that kind of person. That's not me. I, right, you know, other people right. are able to do that. And his whole thing was like, I, that's exactly what I thought. I didn't think I was that kind of person either, but I, 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 anybody can be that. I, I became that. And so in the hit record community, this is years ago now, that was what he was always doing was just finding people who felt like he felt, who felt hesitant and encouraging them and scared. And that spirit is still very much a big, a big part of our community's uh, culture. So that's and great. It's something I try to do and something everyone in our community does for each other. Just really encouraging people to come out of their shells and, and find their creative voice. Well, that's a beautiful way to honor his legacy. Yeah. Thank you. But back, back to your mom, she, she says, I'm proud of both my sons. Yeah. That's her line. Yeah. yeah. And she's, and she's, she is, and they both are great. And that, that goes back to, they never, my parents were always really, um, determined to not, you know, not let the, the trappings of being an actor corrupt me or corrupt our family or, cause it can, it really can. It's, it's, it's dangerous and seductive. I feel bad for people who get seduced by it because it's very seductive and I don't, I don't blame someone for it. You know? Well, it sounds like you, you had a good unit going growing up and, uh, you're doing good things, man. And it was great to Thanks, talk to dude. you. I, Likewise, a real pleasure to talk to you. Thank you for having me on your show. Yeah, and I enjoy I enjoyed the uh, the series a lot, and uh, I hope people like it. Thanks, dude. Thank you. All right, buddy. Take it easy. All right. See you later. Joseph Gordon Levitt. The new show is uh, Mr. Corman. It's on Apple TV Plus. Uh, enjoy it. Enjoy it. Okay, here's some guitar. Familiar guitar.
Boomer lives. Monkey and La Fonda. Cat angels everywhere. <laughs>